Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you could be with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you. Couple items of housekeeping today, Jim, before we actually get to the martinis. I don't think this will go on as long as our uh, uh, conversation about punctuation yesterday, but that was a very needed conversation about punctuation, I would add, and hopefully folks appreciated that. Uh, two things. Uh, number one, we've got a massive storm headed for the Gulf Coast. Uh, should make landfall before you hear tomorrow's podcast. Uh, Texas Gulf Coast, Louisiana Gulf Coast. Hurricane Laura could be coming ashore as powerful as a Category 4 storm. And Jim, as you pointed out to me just before we started recording, the National Hurricane Center is telling folks unsurvivable storm surge could be uh, happening here. So this is not your run-of-the-mill storm. If there is such a thing, this is, this is going to be a big one. Yeah, this is uh, – the map is pretty glaring. It's as red as they can make it, and they're basically saying from – Sea Rim State Park in Texas to Intracoastal City, Louisiana, including a couple of the states and stuff. Surge could penetrate up to 30 miles inland from the immediate coastline. If you're in that area, you probably want to think about getting to higher ground well beforehand. And, uh, you know, we'll be hoping and praying. Hopefully everybody's prepared. You figure everybody in Louisiana is, you know, more than experienced dealing with really bad hurricanes. So they will, I hope everybody down there is probably going to take it seriously. Uh, but it looks like a big storm is coming, batting down the hatches, and everybody do what you can to stay safe out there. Absolutely. Please take whatever precautions you need to to stay safe, and uh, we'll certainly be uh, praying for the folks along the Gulf Coast and even inland because it's a powerful storm, and uh, even well off the coast uh, it could create some serious problems, especially related to flooding. Jim, one brief housekeeping note from yesterday. It's not often that my predictions come true, especially in this short of order. But uh, I suggested yesterday that uh, some of the back and forth with the Falwell resignation, non-resignation, and then back to resignation could be uh, because he was trying to get a nice golden parachute. Apparently, there wasn't a whole lot of wrangling about this. He's getting, according to reports, a $10.5 million payout from Liberty University. He's due $2.5 million constituting two years of his salary plus a one-time payment, I find this interesting, of roughly $8 million as part of a contractual clause giving Falwell full pay if he resigned with restricted responsibilities. Boy, that seems very specific. Uh, And apparently there was uh, no debate, really. It was a unanimous verdict to accept his resignation and a unanimous verdict to give the $10.5 million payout from the board. So... Yeah, it's frustrating, Greg, but as you were doing the introduction for today's podcast, there was an update, which I think is, you know, somewhat fitting. It turns out uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. will be getting the entirety of that $10.5 million payout in the form of a giant golden calf. Completely <laughs> <laughs> literate listeners are finding that hilarious. And a couple of, huh? Yeah. You see uh, Dogma by Kevin Smith? Moopy? There you go. Okay, so. All right, Jim, on to the martinis. Let's start with the good martini and night two of the Republican National Convention, I thought had some very good moments. I think we're probably in agreement that that night one probably had the most powerful moments between Tim Scott and Maxima Alvarez, uh, Andrew Pollack, uh, the woman who was talking about Right to Try, and, and several others. Last night, though, uh, other good moments. Uh, the pardon of John Ponder was a very powerful moment and just the story of his redemption and how he's now working with prisoners to turn their lives around. I know you were particularly struck, I think everybody was, by the power of the naturalization ceremony and what it meant to those people. 
to become Americans. I thought that uh, Daniel Cameron, the attorney general for the state of Kentucky, sorry, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, had a very good speech, especially this part where he really honed in on uh, attacking Joe Biden over his you ain't black comment. I think often about my ancestors who struggled for freedom. And as I think of those giants and their broad shoulders, I also think about Joe Biden who says, if you aren't voting for me, you ain't black. Who argued that Republicans would put us back in chains. Who says there is no diversity of thought in the black community. Mr. Vice President, look at me. I am black. We are not all the same, sir. I am not in chains. My mind is my own. And you can't tell me how to vote because of the color of my skin. I also thought, Jim, that while it might have been a little too long, uh, Melania Trump's speech was, was very good. It was positive. You could say she was being best uh, when she said she uh, wasn't uh, going to attack the Democrats. But uh, she talked a little bit about her own life and, and uh, some encounters that she's had as First Lady over the past four years that have really had a profound impact on her. So what were your big takeaways? Yeah, I'm hoping at some point, however the election shakes out, that maybe we do see some sort of bipartisan cooperation, maybe between Joe Biden and Melania Trump. So we could call it the unit, they could call their joint initiative, Build Back Better, Be Best, <laughs> and the ultimate uh, be alliteration going on there. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was a fine night. Um, the, the speeches probably weren't quite as out of the park as uh, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, and some of the first nights, but I think the continuing to use the ordinary Americans, the lobsterman from Maine, the guy who owns a steel company in Wisconsin. By the way, Greg, did you notice almost every speaker was from a swing state? It was, was really, you know, um, you know, the, the Democrats, you know, Hillary Clinton famously did not go to Wisconsin after the uh, 2016 convention last time. The Democrats wanted to hold their convention in uh, Milwaukee and were not really able to do much in Milwaukee because of the pandemic. Last night, it was like Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Uh, the, the eight-year-old kid benefiting from right to try was from Wisconsin. Very clear focus on that. Melania's speech was fine, but I think you're right. The, the most dramatic moment to me was that naturalization ceremony. And I, I saw this and I was like, this was a really missed opportunity for the Trump administration because last I checked, the message of the Republican Party was, we are not anti-immigration. We are anti-illegal immigration. We love legal immigrants. We want you to follow the rules, stand in line, wait your turn, take the citizenship test. And once you pass, we will welcome you with open arms. And we love these ceremonies. We love to see people taking the oath of citizenship. We love to see people waving their flags. And you kind of wish if you'd been, you know, White House chief of staff, you'd have the president doing this once a week at the White House. Have him constantly emphasizing that the man who, by the way, married two immigrants is not resolutely opposed to everybody who was not born in this country. Um, I know some people argue that it was a violation of the Hatch Act. I, I think the involvement of Chad Wolf in anything that is seen as political convention programming puts him in, uh, at, at minimum, on thin ice, if not in a violation of it. I think the interesting thing is that if they have done this at the White House earlier in the day and not done it as part of the convention programming, did it as part of the standard presidential duties, recorded it all, and then played the tape in prime time as part of the convention, I don't think that would have violated the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act's got a lot of little permutations and details, and uh, I just have a corner post that just went up a short while ago. It, there's nothing violating the Hatch Act for Mike Pompeo to speak and to address the convention. Uh, back in 2012, six Obama cabinet officials spoke at the convention. 
The thing is, you're not allowed to identify them as a cabinet secretary. For some reason, if, they, if they're seen as secretary of state or secretary of veterans affairs or secretary of health and human services, that constitutes being seen as part of their official duties as opposed to being part of a, uh, appearing there as a private citizen. So that's why you may have noticed the beginning of his speech, Mike Pompeo says, I have a really important job as a husband and as a father, you know. So it's his way of saying, if I tell you that I'm secretary of state, I'm breaking the law. So I'm not going to say it. But I know what my job is, and you know what my job is. But as far as everyone's concerned, I'm just an ordinary private citizen speaking to you from the, the roof of the King David Hotel with the old city of Jerusalem behind me. And I'm just going to talk about how great the administration's foreign policy is. Um, if you want to say this was a, you know, this is a bad idea and cabinet officials shouldn't speak, fine, you could say that. You can't argue that's illegal. You can't argue that doesn't have pre a, a precedent. Um, I think the strongest argument against it is that nobody's particularly persuaded by cabinet secretaries. Americans, it may shock you, but I think the guy who gave me this position that I'm in right now is doing a terrific job. He deserves four <laughs> more years. In fact, I don't think he's made a single mistake. And that assessment has nothing to do with the fact that he could fire me whenever he wants. Another thing I thought was good last night was the, the segment where Mike Pence was at Abraham Lincoln's boyhood home in Indiana and brought those people in who benefited by Trump administration policies. You mentioned the, the boy from uh, Wisconsin and others who were there on a whole variety of, uh, of issues. I suspect also, Jim, that uh, you know, one of the criticisms has been there hasn't been a lot of talk about COVID yet. Melania did bring it up in her speech last night. I think that's probably going to be a significant portion of the Pence speech since he's the point man on COVID. There's also comments from Dr. Fauci in the Washington Post from Monday calling Pence a truly decent person and very smart who's trying to do his best in a very difficult and fluid situation. So uh, I think that'll be the part of this convention where the administration gets more detailed on what they've done and what they plan to do about the virus. Would that be your guess? Yeah, you kind of have to. Uh, I mean, last night was a perfectly nice kind of um, appetizer of the vice president and the tone of his remarks, talking to one ordinary American after another who have benefited from the Trump administration's policies, and they all happen to be in swing states. Go figure. It's a coincidence, Jim. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Yeah. It's also so, very smart programming. It is. Yeah, like, a couple of people are like, well, yeah, of course they do. Of course they do this. It happens all the time. Uh, but the bigger deal is, is just, I think people like, it seemed like just relentless last night. It was, you know, oh, and now let's talk to somebody from Pennsylvania, and let's talk to somebody from Ohio. Maybe these are the sort of things that only I noticed. All right. Well, let's talk about our bad martini now, Jim. And our bad and our crazy are going to be very similar, but we'll do our best to, to split them up a little bit here. Um, of course, over the weekend, we had the police-involved shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Thankfully, the person shot uh, is still alive. He's in serious condition. There are some reports that he's now paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, if you saw the press conference uh, with his mother, I thought that was pretty powerful yesterday, talking about how she didn't want to see that happen to anyone else. But at the same time, she, she wanted the looting, the violence, and the mayhem to stop in Kenosha because she noticed all the destruction on her drive over to the place where she was having the press conference. And, well, not too many people listened last night because the rioters were out back in force. Of course, over the past couple of nights, they had torched a number of different businesses and just smashing vehicles and other property all throughout different parts of the city of Kenosha. And so, not surprisingly... People in Wisconsin who own businesses either armed themselves last night or got friends or hired people who could arm themselves. And to no surprise, there were some confrontations last night. There were some shots fired. Two people are dead now. Uh, another one injured. 
Um, I'm, I'm sure different people will, will blame different factions here, but obviously the rioters are the, the instigators here. Jim, so what do you make of Kenosha going up in flames here as the latest example? You talk about this whole phenomenon of, of cities in flames in the morning jolt at length today, but once again, three months after George Floyd, uh, it's continuing unabated. Yeah, um, it's, you know, the, the impetus to this is a sadly familiar situation. A uh, young black man gets shot by a cop. I think it's safe to say that every time a, a person gets shot by a cop, something has gone terribly wrong. And the police officer has found them, the, himself in a spot he didn't want to be in. The moment you're, you're discharging your firearm, there's a chance somebody's going to die. So far, it has not happened in this case. Knocking on wood, hopefully this, per, this uh, person is able to pull through. But, you know, but this is one of those things where you know you've got you know, a, a potentially emotionally incendiary environment, particularly in light of what we've seen. The terrifying thing is that we've seen so many cities have this sort of thing happen. What made last night different was that after now several nights of what you know, started out as protests, then it turned into violence. Then it turned into arson. The moment you got a building burning, and, you know, burning to the ground and giant orange flames, it's not a protest anymore. Right? At that point, it's violence. The moment you, you know, after several consecutive nights of this, the other business owners in Kenosha, and by the way, Kenosha is not that big a city. Last census had it something around 100,000 people. It is not you know, uh, New York City. It is not Atlanta. It is not LA. Um, this is an environment where all of a sudden you're seeing mass violence on a large scale. And so it's not surprising that people, you know, both businessmen and just ordinary citizens who feel menaced by looters and by angry mobs would then say, I'm not going to slide down and take this. I'm not going to let them burn down the buildings that I, you know, my business or my, my home. I'm going to arm myself. This is, I'm not saying we're headed towards a civil war. I'm saying that this is the sort of circumstance in which you've got armed combatants on two sides. And one of the great ironies is that neither one of them is the police. One of the concepts of our free society is that the police have the monopoly on legitimate use of violence. Some might say armed citizens and the situations in which people believe to, uh, able to legally determine to have defended themselves using violence are an exception to this. But the idea is in a good society, in a free society, this is rare. We don't want vigilantism on a large scale. We don't want lots of Americans feeling the need to exercise violence to protect their rights. That is what the police are there for. And the police are supposed to be particularly good at preventing violence, preventing that threat before it comes to the point where someone feels like, I, if I don't take out a gun and start shooting, either I'm going to die or my family's going to get hurt or I'm going to get raped or something terrible is going to happen. What we have, you know, this, this is a situation where like, we really need this to get clamped down quickly. And one of the great iron, this, the reason, I, I, I try to lay this out because, because this is occurring in an election year. And because we live in really partisan, really angry, really polarized times, there are a bunch of people who would say, ah, look at this. It's Trump. You know, look, look, Donald Trump's not in Kenosha. I'm not even sure Donald Trump's ever been to Kenosha. Donald Trump isn't setting police procedure in that city. Donald Trump isn't saying, oh, what do you, if you want, if you're really upset with the police in that city, you should be addressing it to the mayor. Maybe you can address it to the governor. Tony Evers, <laughs> the governor of Wisconsin, but it's Evers, it's not Evers. I know it feels like he speaks for forevers, but that's not you know, um, Evers apparently you know, has turned down the National Guard. Now he's decided to put 250. There are people on the ground who say you probably need something closer to 750. Why are people out doing these things? Why are people setting fire to buildings or looting or smashing windows or stuff like that? Because they don't think there's going to be a consequence. Their attitude is they can't arrest all of us. There are simply too many of us. 
for the Kenosha Police Department to catch all of us and to, and to prosecute, incarcerate us and prosecute us. And for a lot of those folks, it's a safe bet. Police can't be everywhere. So what do you do when the police can't be anywhere? Well, you could call in the state police. You could call in reinforcements from surrounding jurisdictions. Or you could call in the National Guard. But there is no way that this naturally goes away by some sort of, uh, without some sort of additional policing on the streets. You need representatives of the state with the ability to use force, including potentially lethal force. You don't want to use lethal force. As I said at the beginning of this, the moment somebody's bringing, you know, drawing a gun and the safety's off, you're in a bad situation. But it might be necessary, depending on how violent the, pro the, the, the rioters and, and folks are there. If, they, if that's, you know, it, that is the only way that you end up restoring order. That is the only way where people say, you know what, I'm not going to smash that store window because somebody might catch me. I'm not going to burn down that building because somebody might get, have, be able to see, catch me in the act. Or they'll have video footage. They'll see my face and they'll, they'll you know, track me down and find me. Until people fear the consequences of doing bad things, they will feel that temptation to do those bad things. And I just, I'm, I'm so frustrated to see this. People who want to shoehorn this into a uh, standard, we've got the wrong elected official in the White House, and that's the problem here. Maybe that's, maybe that's a good segue to our next martini, Greg. Good segue, Jim. Let's talk about Don Lemon over at CNN, who for the past three months has not seemed to have much interest in addressing the rioting. He was only interested in uh, talking about that as a really a distraction. It's just a, just a fraction of the people out in the streets. The, the real issue is the people demanding change. Just like the Democrats, he can't do both until last night uh, because he sees what's happening at the convention. He sees things that are on fire in Kenosha and still other cities around the country, Portland and Denver most recently. And so in his little back and forth with uh, Chris Cuomo, as they tend to do each night, he talked about the need for Joe Biden suddenly to come out and address this. But uh, take a listen to how he uh, couches this. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem or hoping that it will go away. And it's not going to go away. And so unless someone comes up with a solution over the next 73 days or 70 so, however many days. 68 days. 68 days. So it's not going to, the, the problem is not going to be fixed by then. But what they can do, and I think maybe Joe Biden may be afraid to do it. I'm not sure. Maybe he won't. Maybe he is. He's got to address it. He's got to come out and talk about it. He's got to do a speech like Barack Obama did about race. He's got to come out and tell people that he is going to deal with the issue of police reform in this country and that what's happening now is happening under Donald Trump's watch and on Donald Trump's watch. And when he is the president, Kamala Harris is the vice president, then they will take care of this problem. But guess what? The rioting has to stop. Chris, as you know, and I know it's showing up in the polling. Mm -hmm. It's showing up in focus groups. So there you go, Jim. Um, I hope on some level he is bothered by what he's seeing and the destruction and the fact that it's not actually leading to any positive changes anywhere. But the fact that he says, whoa, this is showing up in the polling. We should probably do something about this kind of tells you why he's bringing this up now. Greg, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point the finger of blame in an unexpected direction. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm irritated with what Don Lemon says. Yes, I'm really most angriest at the people who are committing the acts of violence. But I think the person who is perhaps indirectly responsible for this kind of thinking, this kind of mentality of this is the way to respond to serious levels of violence and unrest in the city, I'm going to point the finger at Aaron Sorkin, Greg. And you know why? Why? 
Because if you think back to the West Wing, Aaron Sorkin created this very idealized way of, of, of how the White House would work and how government should work. And if you were a Democrat in the 1990s, heading into the 2000s, you loved this show. There are a whole bunch of Democrats all around Washington who were young, who were kids or teenagers or just starting to get into politics when they watched this. And Josiah Bartlett was exactly what they thought a president ought to be. And how did Josiah Bartlett handle a crisis? How did he deal with the problem? Well, the first 50 minutes of the show would be some sort of problem. And then Martin Sheen would come into the room and he'd offer some sort of inspiring speech. And, you know, obviously the, the Republicans were, you know, would pee themselves and, and you know, uh, heads would explode with his eloquence and invocation of our American Valley, blah, blah, blah. And everybody would be, by the, by the time the credits rolled, the crisis was solved because Josiah Bartlett had said exactly the right thing. Unfortunately, you know, leave it to, to Aaron Sorkin, a writer, to believe that just the right words can solve the problem. Unfortunately, the real world is a little more complicated. And I think you could have the perfect president who went out there to the Rose Garden and gave the perfect speech. And I'm not sure the single person in Kenosha who's currently setting fire to buildings or smashing store windows and taking things or committing, I don't think they're listening. So when you say, first of all, by the way, this was the, very much the mentality of the Obama administration. Obama, Barack Obama, whatever you think of him, was one hell of a public speaker probably as eloquent as they come, probably as good a guy at public speaking as we've had in the White House. And so the idea, the idea that both the Obama administration seemed to incorporate in its thinking, and a lot of fans of the Obama administration seem to believe as well, if the president gives a really good speech about this, then the problem will be solved. And that's why he's saying he's got to do a speech like Barack Obama did about race. But we've already seen what happens when Barack Obama is president and there's a terrible urban unrest. Saw it in Ferguson. We saw it in Baltimore. We saw it in uh, actually, I think it was somewhere else in Wisconsin as well. We saw it uh, uh, the the assassin the, the shooting of those four cops in Dallas. Like we had tensions between cops and African Americans in the Obama administration. And I know a lot of conservatives really like to rip into Obama. I think Obama really wanted to solve this. I think he, he was a I think he had no shortage of good intentions. I don't think he deliberately wanted to stir up these tensions. I think he wanted there to be trust between the cops and, and black communities. Good intentions aren't enough. There are certain things that can't be changed by the president. If I'm, I'm one of the few people, one of the few things Valerie Jarrett ever said was this idea that uh, the president himself can't take care of this problem. The president, you know, um, it's not something the president, just because the country elected him, that suddenly all of our history just evaporates. Discussing racism, racism she said, this has to happen family by family. It has, it has to happen to the water cooler. It's not the president's job to make sure that every neighborhood in America does not have racial tensions. It's an unrealistic expectation. He just can't do it. So this, I think there are a lot of Democrats who are walking around saying, ah, you know, but once Biden's in there, this is going to get fixed. Eh, not so sure. I, besides the fact that he goes out and, you know, tells stories of the good old days, the times he was able to work with segregationists or tell certain people they're not black. I mean, Biden has his own times of being racially uh, uh, in, you know, uh, you know, 7-Elevens and slight Indian accents and, and all the other times. That's even putting all of that aside. Even if Biden stuck to the script, I don't think any of these guys care. The only way you stop this is with more police on the streets. And this happens at a moment when a lot of people don't trust the police. It is a catch-22. It is a really thorny problem for mayors and governors right now. But you know what? Sitting back and hoping for it to go away is not going to work. So that's the situation we have. We got to see what Tony Evers changed his mind. We got to see if the mayor says, hey, you know what? We just don't have enough cops. I got to call every surrounding county and say, who can you send? That's what you'd like to see. 
we'll see everything shake out in different things. But I think uh, it is a long, hot, ugly summer. And I think a lot of people are kind of clutching to this very unrealistic idea that as soon as they vote the right person into office, these problems will go away. Well, Jim, I think that is right. I also think you're going to find some disagreement from folks about uh, Barack Obama's approach to that issue. I can't speak to his intentions, but whenever he spoke about Ferguson or, or other things, uh, Trayvon looked like my son, uh, the cop act acted stupidly at Cambridge. Uh, those things seem to make things worse a lot of the time. And so I don't know exactly what Biden could say, like you said. And also, if he was really bothered by cities being in flames, he'd probably bring it up sometime sooner than three months after it started happening. So uh, in addition to the fact that the people lighting the fires don't care what he has to say, uh, the fact that uh, it's, it's only when the poll numbers might shift a little bit that uh, he's saying, oh, you know what? This is a problem. Uh, that's going to come across as slightly insincere. Yeah. I mean, if Biden had, you know, at some point in his remarks, or even just taped a short video that had run during the convention, saying violence has no place in our movement and uh, it, it dishonors George Floyd. It dishonors what everybody's marching for. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't have cost him a single vote. But he didn't. So why? I think he, I think he fears it would cost him votes. And if that's the case, uh, for four nights last night, we were told about how Joe Biden stands up and does the right thing, even in the face of political pressure. Mm, maybe not so much. <laughs> If you can't get out there, especially after just a few nights, forget three months, and say, this is wrong, you shouldn't be destroying property and burning down your own city, if you don't say that because you're worried it'll cost you votes, you don't deserve the votes. We'll see what ultimately happens here. But the fact that uh, some Dems are getting nervous means somebody might actually say something on the other side, which I guess could be helpful, perhaps. But uh, the fact that it's been so universal on the left, that people have been so reluctant to say anything about it. Is just, uh, is just stunning to me. And I think there, there is a price to pay for that. We'll see how severe it is. Anyway, Jim, on that- Happy, really, happy Wednesday, everybody. <laughs> on that exciting, optimistic note. Uh, again, folks along the Gulf Coast, please batten down the hatches, do what you have to do to be safe. And uh, obviously we hope that uh, things are not as severe as are being forecasted. And you might even have power and the ability to listen to the three martini lunch tomorrow. But uh, something tells me you'll probably have more important things to deal with on Thursday than that. So please be safe and we'll certainly be keeping you all in our prayers. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Leave us a kind review and a five-star rating. We would be very grateful for that. Also get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.